This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. I just think it's an enticement. It's not rocket science. It can be done. I truly believe it can. It's wanton destruction. It's also illegal. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Good morning. Welcome to Wednesday's Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Fiona Corcoran in for PJ on what is again to be a beautiful day. Uh, Met Erin had forecast a status yellow heat warning for Cork yesterday and for much of the country. I think indeed some counties had an orange warning and I don't think I've seen that in a long time here in Ireland. Um, and later on, like as families are flocking to the beach, we're hoping to talk to a Cork family who had uh, a real treat yesterday when they were on the beach and y'all uh, would have that coming up later on. Um, just to let people know as well, we've had a lot of calls to this show over the last couple of days from people who were looking for the COVID certificate, uh, the digital COVID certificate helpline. A lot of people were saying that they couldn't get through and, um, you know, obviously it was very, very busy, but it has been confirmed that a second number has been set up for people. It's one eight hundred eight zero seven zero zero eight. That number again is one eight hundred eight zero seven zero zero eight. And people uh, can try that, or indeed they can try the old number as well. One eight hundred eight five one five zero four. That number is one eight hundred eight five one five zero four. And indeed, uh, Paul Tweed. Paul Reid was tweeting earlier on this morning to say that 79% of adults in Ireland now are partially vaccinated and over 65% are fully vaccinated. So a bit of good news on the vaccination programme here this morning. Uh, now also this morning uh, the government are expected to sign off on indoor dining later today. And some rules um, that were leaked uh, before that meeting were that there will be no time limit on tables, there have to be more ventilation in, um, in, in premises and that staff will have to check COVID certs as people come in. And joining me on the line now is Adam Higgins from The Sun newspaper. Good morning, Adam. 
Good morning, Fiona. Yeah, it might be one of the warmest days of the year, but <laughs> indoor dining is the, the hot topic for Cabinet today. <laughs> so what, uh, what what are we expecting? Now, we, we know that um, some of the information came out in the media yesterday, but what are you hearing on the ground there this morning? Yeah, as you mentioned there, it's, it's going to be last orders for that 105-minute rule that we've all seen. So that's, that's going to be gone in both pubs and restaurants. Some of the things that will remain, um, despite being people only fully vaccinated people and recovered people being allowed indoors will be that if you leave your table, you'll have to have a mask on. That's when you're going to the toilet or, or leaving the place. Um, you'll also have to have uh, your fully vaccinated pass on the way in. So you'll be on the way into the, the restaurant or pub. A member of staff will be passed uh, with checking IDs and checking your vaccination pass. So that'll be this, as you mentioned at the start of the show, the, this uh, EU pass will be will be used. Or you can also use that card that many people will have gotten from the HSC with your uh, vaccination details on it, that physical card. You can also use that one as well. Um, what will happen then is they'll check your card, check your ID, and, and then you go to enjoy indoor dining. Now, the government are working on a new app, a COVID cert checker app, mm. that they hope to have ready for next week. But that's going to be for the hospitality industry, something they can, their staff can have on their phone that they can use to scan these QR codes. And once they scan it, up will pop your, your vaccination details and then they can check your physical ID to make sure you are the person who, belong, who this cert belongs to. Did you hear anything about table service? Will people be allowed to go to the bar or is that going to continue? So table service is definitely going to continue. It'll be max six per table. And then the numbers on how many children will be allowed at each table has yet to be worked out. Mm. Now, when it comes to sitting at the bar and ordering a point, something that we all miss, I'm sure, and watching the match, (laughs) that is still up in the air. But government sources telling me early this morning that it's very unlikely. I know the publicans were pushing hard at the the working group meeting last night to try and get that uh, introduced for vaccinated people that you could sit at the bar. But I'm told at this stage it's unlikely. But there are some talks still to go ahead. Those guidelines uh, are due to be published by Fauci Ireland once President Michael D. Higgins signs off on these, uh, this reopening law. Mm-hmm. So once the, the President signs off on that, which is expected to be at either you know today, tomorrow or Friday, then it, at the earliest we're looking at probably Friday for the Fauci Ireland guidelines and then pubs reopening then on Monday. Which would be music to so many people's ears, I think. And as you say, like we have, um, you know, the really hot weather, but I think people are just dying to get inside for a pint. <laughs> Do you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And another thing that will be interesting to see uh, how it works out now over the next few weeks is how this is policed because we know that there was a lot of talk about self-policing that the industry would Mm. self-police this and and there was concerns that some businesses might just you know throw caution to the wind and let whoever they wanted in in order to get business again Mm. but what we were told from last night's meeting is that uh, officials from the HSE and the HSA uh, will be checking up on businesses to see that they're administering these passes that they're using this system but what I was told is that these officials won't be going into the restaurant and coming up to you at your table and saying, look, show us your, your vaccine pass. They'll just be going to the, the system at the front of the door and checking that people have been scanned in, people are, are, are using this pass system, that business they're using. It won't be on customers. The onus will be on businesses. And is there any opposition to any of these in uh, the government? Within government, there was concerns, and there has been concerns across, really, the doll, but even within government parties, there's been concerns that this is discriminatory. And we've seen this, uh, I know we talked about it on the show before, that um, there's concerns that this will, you know, kind of fuel this anti-vax uh, agenda and that the 
the fact that people who can't who don't don't want to get a vaccine for whatever reason, whatever personal reason, or maybe they can't get a vaccine, won't be allowed into a restaurant. Now, it's the government have planned to to address that as part of a phased reopening of hospitality. So this is next week. We're looking at phase one, which will be vaccine, vaccinated only and people who have recovered from the virus. Phase two, I'm told, then will be. Um, the implementation of PCR tests. So you'd be able to go and get a PCR test. If you're negative, you can get this pass in the same way you do for international travel. And that will also be used and built into this COVID checker system. The final phase, then the third phase, will be these rapid antigen testing that we've heard a lot about. So the idea then, I think the aim will be that you can use this test at home and then go show the negative test at the at the door and then you go into the pub but those are still kind of under consideration no hard dates on when they're going to be uh, rolled out Okay. And Adam, just in relation to what you were mentioning there about the issue of discrimination, Health Minister Stephen Donnelly did make a speech about this issue in the Dáil yesterday. Uh, what was the reaction among deputies and among the objectors in general to that speech? There's been some reaction, there's been, there's been a lot of reaction really about this discrimination. We know uh, in the final days of the doll um, last week, there was uh, a lot of opposition parties coming forward and saying that they wouldn't vote for this uh, this legislation that has passed now through the doll and is, is yet to be signed in by the, the president because they feel like it's discriminatory, it's creating this two-tier reopening. And the government are just saying, look, we know, I mean, at the time, Leo Varadka had said, look, we know that this is, there's problems with this, but it's the best of, of uh, the only, it's one of the only options. It's either this or hospitality stays closed until later in the year. Now, you can argue until the chickens come home about whether that's right or whether that is the only option. But this is the way the government are going, and they're pushing ahead with it now next Monday. And I'm told that this, the, the discussion at Cabinet today will really just be rubber stamping it, that the decision is already made. This is going to go ahead on Monday. Um, that's just, we, we just have to live with it. Adam, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but somebody has uh, just texted us in on 0833969696. Is there going to be two metres between tables and if kids are present, one metres otherwise? Can you mix or does a venue have to decide? Can they have an adult block and a family block? Do you know anything about any of those issues yet? I do indeed. That's a great question. So the two metre rule... Um, this time limit situation, the 105 minutes that we mentioned earlier on, mm. that was previously tied to that rule so that you could only stay in the restaurant if the tables, for longer than 105 minutes, if the tables are two metres apart. I've told that connection has been broken and that the 105 minute rule now counts no matter what. The social distancing aspect of those rules has yet to be revealed, but I'm told that if people bring their children to the restaurant that they tables between children will have to have two meters apart so i'd imagine what you're looking at there is probably family sections in some restaurants and that sort of thing now how these guidelines are implemented by the industry is entirely up to individual restaurants and businesses so they can decide what how they want to take these rules and use them as long as they adhere to the the stone guidelines at, at the in the base of it. Mm. So I think what we're going to see in that Falsh Ireland um, advice, um, the, the guidelines is you'll probably see a maximum of how many children are allowed at each table along with the, the number of adults. And you'll also see whether two metres is needed between all family tables, whether it's needed between just tables with children or whether that can be one metre. And it'll be interesting to see that. There's also going to be a big focus on ventilation in particular to target and address that issue. And I'm told that the HSA will be publishing new 
ventilation advice that won't only apply to pubs and restaurants, but will also apply to all businesses that are allowing people indoors, so that's retail as well. Brilliant, Adam Higgins from The Sun. Thanks very much for joining me with that update this morning. Now, also on the line, I have Aidan Duke from Duke's Coffee Company over in the lovely Huguenot Quarter in the city centre. Good morning, Aidan. Good morning, Fiona. How are you keeping? I'm very well, I'm very well. You uh, heard what Adam was saying there about these rules that are going to be signed off by the government, expecting uh, to be signed off today. Uh, what's your own reaction to all this? Do you think that, um, do you know, like more ventilation in your premises, getting staff to check COVID certs is going to be feasible? Well, I guess it has to be. Um, um, for the short term, I guess we're going to have to... Um, adhere to these guidelines. I mean, there's an awful lot to digest here, Fiona, you know, mm. um, and the devil is in the, in the details. So we really have to wait until what um, the fine detail is in the, in the regulations, you know. The one thing I didn't get from, from, from Alan there was, um, h- how long is this bill um, going to be enacted for? Um, I, I'm not actually sure. Maybe Fergal might know over in the research desk there, but um, he was saying that the Fall Ireland guidelines are going to be coming into, uh, are, are expected to be published on Friday, but um, I suppose it's going to last for, you know, an indefinite amount of time. Um, we don't really know. We haven't actually asked that question yet, I don't think. So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely that, one that we could ask somebody if they know. I think we need to find that out because, mm. I mean, you commented yourself there this morning on the, the progression of the vaccination programme and mm. I think I think sixty is it sixty five percent of adults are now fully vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember hearing stuff a couple of months ago that once the country is at seventy percent, mm. um, that perhaps um, the rest of businesses could reopen. You know, yeah. hospitality included. You know, so uh, that's the kind of thing, the detail I'm looking for. I mean, in the short term, all this stuff is doable. Um, but in the long term, I mean, if you if you have to dedicate a member of staff to uh, to check vaccine uh, stuff and and you know all the all the criteria we have to go through. Mm. There's a huge cost for that in the long term. You know, I mean, it, it, we'll we'll digest it um, in the in in the short term. But in the long term, it's it's kind of a, it's something to think about. You know. I know, yeah. And you yourself, you were saying that, uh, like, you've obviously had some out, some outdoor dining over the last while, but, yeah. you know, I, I've been in your premises and you have an upstairs and downstairs, so obviously yeah. the capacity is so much more once you're able to open up your doors. But um, yeah. are you reopening on Monday? Uh, n- definitely not Monday, if you want to know. Um, as I was saying, th- th- there's a lot in the detail here. So, you know, I'm going to wait and see what the details are in the guidelines, and then I'm going to sit down with my team and we're going to come up with a plan. Um mm. You know, and it's all about the vaccination. I mean, we keep getting back to it. But, you know, the fact is that every week that goes by, another member or two of my team get vaccinated. And that puts us in a more confident um, footing yeah. of opening the doors, you know. Um, but I must say, there, there is something uneasy about asking, uh, uh, you know, a fellow mm. <laughs> a fellow uh, citizen about their, their medical records, you know. Um, I, I realise we have to do it. Yeah. I realise that in the short term. But in the long term, we have to have a kind of a, a long-term plan because it's it's not sustainable. You know? How do you feel about asking your regulars, do you know, like um, people that you know very well, if you have to ask them all the well, time? For... You know, it's a good question because my staff are actually saying that. They're, they're very much like saying, look, there's people we've been serving for 10 and 15 years and we know them and we know their families and we know the names of them. So... You know, we'll probably do check with them once, you know, and 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 then just 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 let it off, you know, because yeah. um, it's you know it's again it's not sustainable. And I mean, the whole thing about repeat custom and and I know people are joking, you know, about if you want to go out for a cigarette, you have to get tagged and all that. But 
the, the question remains, if, if I have customers who, who drink a cappuccino and it's going every single morning, mm. so do I have to um, you know, get, get vaccination clearance on them every single morning? Yeah. You know, a lot, a lot of these uh, regulations um, are based on kind of traditional uh, restaurants and big pubs, but there's an awful lot of kind of counter-based hospitality. You know, if you think of... Um, you know, fast food that that has some seating and coffee shops. A lot of the coffee shops, you know, it's all about, you know, going to the counter, getting food and beverage and sitting down, you know. And it's more difficult to implement these systems um, when you have a service day like that. Mm. Now, again, in the short term, that all can be changed and adapted. But again, it's, it's the long term that, we're, that we're, um, we're concerned about, you know. Okay. All right. Listen, Aidan, thanks so much and best of luck with everything. I suppose the weather is really helping with the outdoor dining this week, isn't it? Oh, it's fabulous. There's, there's a great buzz down here in the Huguenot Quarter. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It's, um, Cork is really shining at the moment. It's, it's great. I'm loving going to work at the moment. Brilliant. Brilliant. Glad to hear it. And thanks very much for um, taking our call this morning here on the Opinion Line on 96FM. Now, just for something different, um, if I go to line five there, Wayne, um, Emma Bennett, um, her daughter has lost her passport in College Road area this morning and she needs it for the driving theory test for today. Um, good morning, Emma. Hi, how are you? Tell me what happened. Um, I was walking down to um, the theory test centre and I checked my bag and it was missing and I'm just looking for it so I can do my test today. Okay, and um, you... Uh, and it's definitely not at home. <laughs> like it's no, definitely... I, uh, no, I double-checked that it wasn't there. It's nowhere to be found at the moment. I'm, I'm assuming that um, it must have fallen out. Somebody picked it up on their way to work. Okay. Around the College Road area. Okay, and um, you need it for your driver theory test. Now, what time is your test at? It was at nine, but they said that I could take it at any time today if they, um, if my passport was found. Okay, and have you been waiting for a while to do this test? Yeah, a long time. <laughs> How long have you been waiting? <laughs> Around like six months. Oh no, no. So like if you don't get to do it today, then are you... I'm set back. All right, okay, okay. So yeah, it's kind of urgent that you get this. And were you just, were you in any any shop or anything along College Road or... No, I was just uh, walking down College Road into the city by the church. Right, by St. Finbar's Cathedral, is it? Yeah. Okay. And did you take anything out of your bag? I, I took out my phone to answer um, the phone to my mom. Okay. And I'm assuming it must have fallen out. Somebody must have picked it up. I'm just hoping that if somebody um, could drop it into the guards. Okay. And your own name, I'm, I have Emma Bennett here, but that's, is that your mom's name? Uh, no, that's my mum's. No, my mum's mom, name is Claire. I'm Emma. Okay, you're Emma. Okay, <laughs> so so if anybody finds a passport this morning along College Road, uh, Emma Bennett, um, and that's uh, so you want them to to pass it into the Garda station. Yes, please, Anglesey Street, please. Okay, Anglesey Street, Garda station, or anywhere. Okay, <laughs> you must be very really concerned, are you? Yeah. I really am. It was a bit shaky. Oh, God. All right. OK. Well, listen, Emma, thanks so much. And if anybody does find that passport along College Road, uh, please pass it in to either Anglesey Street Guard the Station or any Guard the Station. And if Emma does find it, best of luck with your driver theory test. Now, coming up after the break, I'm going to be speaking to somebody about um, walking around town without your top on. So maybe get in touch with us after that. Can we just talk? Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850-715-996. On Quartz 96 FM. 
Welcome back to the Opinion Line on 96FM. Just in relation to the conversation I had with Adam Higgins earlier about um, indoor dining discrimination and a caller has been in touch with us on 083 96 96 to say I have had my vaccine and don't mind the current rules. However, I do feel like some restrictions are going to tear the country in two. Irish never have such strong issues with each other, but this seems to be the one thing tearing us apart. Now, another issue that might tear us apart is... Um, whether or not you feel comfortable about seeing people with their top on walking around town. Good morning, Joe. <laughs> Good morning, Fiona. First of all, I'd say you're doing a wonderful job, Fiona. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely fabulous. You'll be doing it more often. <laughs> Thanks very um, much. <laughs> well, Fiona, I'm out in the garden here at the moment, right? And yeah. I'm poking around with my top off. Right. Obviously, the site with the COVID zone and all that. <laughs> but you know, when you go out and see people in the park, isn't too bad. Or go around shopping centres with their mm. top off. Do you think that's appropriate? Do you think it's... It looks well. I think it looks pretty off. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Now, having said that, some bodies can look great, but Jesus, the others and the stomach is hanging out over the shorts, and the top is totally off. And I don't think it's fair. On a... so, do you think it's all right for somebody to walk around if they have a good body? <laughs> well, of course, that's been praised now because I have. So, like, I mean, I'd be kind of thinking later when I go to Tesco's and get a scone and just show off the body. Hardly, <laughs> Fiona. I can assure you. No, I don't. I don't know. See, years ago, I would have. There's nothing wrong with it. Right. But as I'm getting older now, I'm just thinking, like, is it a bit off-putting when you're there walking around maybe a shopping centre or going to town Park Street and see three or four lads with their tops off or maybe a 50-year-old man with the belly out over the shorts? You know what I mean? I don't know if that's attractive. Is that shapeless um, now, Joe, was it? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean... Um, yeah, I was reading there recently, someone put out for a shop, I think, in England, mm. for going in topless, some guy. Right. And he was kicking up stink. Um, but no, I draw the line there now, going into a shop with your top off, you know what I mean? And I remember years ago, I was in Canaries and I went on a bus and I had my top off and they asked me to put it back on. Yeah. But I'm sure that was just pure jealousy. <laughs> sure it was. And what about women? Well, I mean, I know women don't go around with their tops off, but, um, you know, if they did, would there be an issue with that? Well, it wouldn't be interested in me, anyway, if you want, I can assure you. <laughs> I would have the slightest. But I would tell you one thing, if you want, I'm like, very old or something, or something might as well have their top off. There's these bikini tops now, and they're, oh my God, they're like being on the beach. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen them? I have seen them. I have seen them. Now, I obviously wouldn't wouldn't wear anything like that, but that's again to do with my own body confidence and my own body shape. But uh, look at I I think. Beautiful (laughs) bodies out there and they look fantastic in fairness. You know what I mean? Yeah, and more power to them if they want to go around the tops of. But I suppose. Do you know, like, it's so hot and people just can't um, stick it. And you kind of think, like, do they get a pass now because it's so hot? But um, back in April, when we had kind of a, the, the first glimmer of, of good weather, it wasn't really that hot. I saw people walking around with their tops off and I had my coat on. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's an ego thing, though, I think, like, you know. Yeah. About it. You ever see sometimes with the top off, they have the walk as well. <laughs> the walk goes. Or, like, I went into the salon yesterday now for just for a second and had a vest top on, which I normally wear only on the pool maybe in Canaries or somewhere like that yeah. and one of the girls said jeez Joey look like a talk I said what's supposed to be you know what I mean it's a face up nah it's awful <laughs> you know Pretty, well, so listen, I kind Joe. of draw the line going out for that too but Fiona the only problem I have here now this morning no can you help me my husband's upstairs right and he's walking away in his office and I'm in the garden with my top off it must be very distracting for me you know what I mean I'm sure it's really the distracting for me the on a conference call <laughs> and he's trying to concentrate on what he's doing and here I am like what's his name in Baywatch 
<laughs> David Hasselhoff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God, I wish. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, keep doing the gardening there. All that digging will give you a six-pack oh, now. Joan, I think I'm sunstroke at the moment if I'm talking like this on the radio anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, listen, thanks a million for that. We have had a caller in to say in Spain you'd be arrested and they have the right idea. Also with COVID, you shouldn't be able to as it can be carried in sweat or they are not totally sure if it can, at least. Anybody else who has any views on that? Do you think it's appropriate for people to be walking around with their tops off? Regardless of their size, get in touch 083 396 96 96. Now to something else. We're hearing so many stories in this country about people not being able to afford to buy their own home. But what if you simply don't want to buy a house? Joining me now is Jade Hayden, who's deputy editor of her.ie. Good morning, Jade. Hi, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well. So you're not one of those people who's trying to get on the property ladder. Not right now, no. I mean, and I don't know if that's the most surprising considering the state of the housing market. Like, I had a conversation with a friend of a friend recently who just kind of flat out asked me if I ever planned to buy a house. And I was actually shocked because I'd never actually been asked that so earnestly. Yeah. Like, I realised now that people like around my age, they are actually thinking about these things and that it is accessible for a lot of people to apply for a mortgage. But that is something that I genuinely had not even considered. Like, I grew up in the council house in Dublin. I was single until quite recently. So, like, buying a house just never on my radar. I didn't mm. have any experience of it from my parents. I've lived in house shares since I moved out. And, like, I do enjoy the freedom of renting. And I think I will for, you know the next few years but at the same time neither renting nor applying for a mortgage is really accessible to me long term like rent rents are so high at the moment across the country but the other option is just to apply for a mortgage and buy and that's so far beyond any kind of money that I have and like I work full time I'm in my 20s I have a partner now and even if we wanted to buy a house we just couldn't mm. and are you, would you be happy to rent a house for the foreseeable future I would I would you know that's the thing I enjoy like the kind of the freedom of renting, but mm. at the same time, it's like people always say you're just throwing away money if you are renting. And I fully believe that they are correct. But then the other option is to then go apply for a mortgage. And that's just not possible for me at the moment. You know, I know people who are buying and they're living at home at the moment and they're saving three quarters of their wages every month or they're in high paying jobs and they're able to kind of buy outside the city. And that's great for them. They seem to be happy doing that. But like I want to stay in the city. I commuted for years. And it was just like, I really did not like it. So right now, I don't want to do that again. Um, and yet so many people my age are just kind of being pushed out of the city or Ireland altogether because of the living cost of rent and the rising cost. They're not matching your earnings. But yeah, I mean, if it was accessible for me to rent for the next while, mm. I would. Do you think that um, you said that you were really surprised that somebody asked you if you wanted to buy your own home? Do you think that there's a lot of pressure now on young people in particular who maybe are not in that frame of mind just yet that they're not thinking about owning their home but there there's so many fear stories out there about high mortgages that they feel like that they have to be saving now in their 20s in order to be able to buy a house in their 30s yeah absolutely like here in ireland it just seems to be people just want you to buy a house it's like if you say that you're renting it's like a stock gap you're not settled you know, but the option should be there. I suppose it is if you've got the money, you can kind of rent forever and be happy enough. But then you also run into issues there. Like I was living in a house last year um, with a couple of people and the landlord suddenly decided that she wanted a family to move in and she didn't want to rent to just kind of single people anymore. And that was fine. You know, I moved out and I luckily found somewhere quite quickly. Mm. But then I went up then um, to pick up some posts or whatever and it was just her kids living in the house. And I was like, oh, are you serious? Like, you're really just going to kick us all out just so you can move your kids in. So there's that instability there at renting as well, which I don't like. You know, you never know when a landlord or 
whoever owns your apartment or house is going to turn around and say, actually, oh, you have to move. Um, so it's, yeah, it's for that reason, I kind of, you know, a few years ago, I was like, oh, renting is great. I love this. You know, I love like not having to be settled. I love just kind of picking up and going whenever I want. But now I'm kind of looking five years into the future and I'm like, God, I don't know if renting is sustainable for me, but also I don't have the option to buy a house. So like, what, what do people like me do? I know, yeah. Um, and I, I suppose a lot of people now are just living at home with their parents so that they can save for, for the house in their 30s. Yeah, exactly. And like, there's such a privilege that comes with that as well. Like, I have privilege in being able to like move out and be able to afford an apartment near enough to the city centre in Dublin. But like, a lot of people can't actually move home. Like, they don't have good relationships with their parents. They're living in a different country. It's too far away from work. Like, whatever the reason, you know, we should be able to afford home as adults in our 20s and 30s we shouldn't have to rely on our parents or make mad money at work or move home to save for a mortgage you know I know couples who haven't even lived together ever because they live at home to save money and they're applying for mortgages in the hope of buying a house and you know they're kind of like we'll do this and it'll be worth it at the end but they are they're scrimping their wages every month they're saving everybody money they have and they're still finding it difficult to find somewhere. Mm. And like do you think that um do you think that we have the wrong approach here in this country? We hear of other people in, in other European countries who are kind of happy to rent for the rest of their lives. But uh, here there just seems to be such a huge focus on owning your own house. Yeah, there really is. You know, it's it's like Dublin is the fifth most expensive city to rent in Europe. Um, and the likes of like, you know, London, Zurich and Geneva are above that. But like mm. lower down the list is the likes of, say, Berlin. And like that's a city where people are more than happy to rent indefinitely rather than buy I don't know what the figures are like now, but uh, 10 years ago, 90% of residential properties in Berlin were rentals. You know, the rentals mm. are already affordable and it had to be because there was so much choice. You know, people weren't like up on daft searching for months and months and months to try and find somewhere to live. They just, if they wanted to move out, they could. Whereas here in Dublin, we just, we don't have the housing for it either. You know, mm. so that's why the rents are so high. The demand is so high. There's not enough space. And that's why, um, yeah, there's just, like there's absolutely no choice so that's how people can get away with it charging these astronomical rents so do you think now that um because you have adopted this attitude now towards owning your own home that you have a lot more freedom than say some of your friends who are trying to save for a house i mean maybe at the moment i do and like i am enjoying that freedom but it's hard to not think into the future and then i don't know maybe in 10 years i'll look back and be like god look at the amount of money that i wasted on rent but like right now maybe yes because i am out on my own and I'm not, you know, like half of my wages are going towards my rent, but then the rest of it is just for me. Yeah. And even that in, it, that in itself just kind of seems like it, it's quite, it's abysmal. Like, you know, I don't really understand why that's just a given, you know, um, like a, a study showed that this generation of Irish people are the first to have a worse standard of living than the generation before us. And that's just astounding to me. Like somehow we've gone backwards and spending half of your wages on rent is just a normal thing. And yeah. like someone like me is having it like, I don't know, maybe easier at the moment than someone who's saving for a house. But I mean, both options are, are quite shocking. Like, Yeah, no, they definitely are. It's definitely something to consider and something to think about. And it's a different um, um, approach to to the whole housing issue. Thank you very much to Jade, Jade Hayden from uh, her.ie for joining me there on that um, issue. Coming up next, I'll be speaking to a young man who had his dreams come true made yesterday. Now, just we've had some comments there 
there in relation to the indoor dining. Uh, Michael from the VFI has been on. Um, we were talking earlier to Aidan Duke from Duke's Coffee Company and he wanted to know how long these new rules will be in place for. And Michael from the VFI has been in touch to say it will be in place until early October. Um, he also had uh, an answer for Bear who texted us on or who sent us a message on WhatsApp. Morning Fiona, any idea when we will have some music in the pubs? Many thanks from Bear and Michael says no live music for now but it will be reviewed in a few weeks along with the overall guidelines. Declan has been in touch. Hi Fiona, no restaurant is going to set up tables inside that are two metres apart or even just a section of inside just to accommodate children when they can put more tables one metres apart inside so that they can get more adults inside and then just put families with children outside in the rain and wind. Um, a caller has said um, I, I have had my vaccine and don't mind the current rules and uh, in relation to the conversation I had with Joe about taking your top off and walking around the town um, a caller has been in touch to say when I was growing up any sign of hot weather all men would take their tops off no matter size or shape and no one thought anything of it. Luciendo on Twitter says I mean I wouldn't be too offended if the ladies could do too but sure it's different from them and Mary Jane on Twitter has said hashtag free the move uh, so keep your comments coming in to us 0833969696 now before the break I was saying that I was going to be talking to a young man whose dream came true yesterday on Yall Beach Dara Mori good morning hello Dara what happened when you were at Yall Beach yesterday well um we were sitting at the beach and um um we saw um a certain person um he passed over us and um he called us up for a picture and um he bought he bought us uh ice creams. It's a uh, Roy Keane. Roy Keane <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we got a picture with him as well and um yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a nice fella, you know. And um, I'm a United supporter myself and I uh, was very happy to see him. And did you did you call out to him when he was walking past, or did he just spot you guys? No, and... he called us up. He um, called us up for a picture. And what did you think when he said that to you? Oh well, I was um, ecstatic. Like I was so excited. My heart was beating so fast. I just couldn't believe it because I've been wanting to meet him my whole life because he's been one of my favourite players. <laughs> and you got a photograph, and it, he actually bought you an ice cream as well. Yeah, I did. And um, best ice cream of my life. <laughs> Was it a 99? Did he go the extra stretch? Yeah. <laughs> and how many of you were there? Was it your whole family? Was it just you and your friends or what? Well, it was it was um, a, a big chunk of my family and some relatives and friends. Yeah. Yeah. We all, um, most of us got in the picture as well. And um, my dad's gone viral now. What do you mean? He put He put the picture up on social media? Yeah. 5,000 likes. On Twitter, is it? Yeah. <laughs> and when you saw that, when you woke up this morning, that there was 5,000 likes on the picture on Twitter, um, I'd say your head was just in a spin, was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what is it about Kino that you love so much, Dara? <clears throat> Excuse me. He's sarcastic. And I just, I love him. He's a great, he was a great player as well. And he's a nice, he's a nice person. And pers- like, when you meet him, some people think he's rude. Like, see him on the TV, but he's a great fella. Was he sarcastic when he was talking to you? <laughs> no, but like, he, you see that on the TV. Yeah. Like, 
And do you think that gives him a bit of an edge that he has that whole, you know, that uh, people think that, oh yeah, he's really sarcastic and oh yeah, he can be really mean. But then, you know, underneath it all, in private, like as you met him yesterday, he's a nice person. Do you think that um, that, that just makes him as popular as he is? Yeah, it definitely does. I just, it, it seems great. And do you play soccer yourself? Huh? Do you play football yourself? Oh yeah, I do. I play for um, St. Mary's. Right, okay. And uh, are you the same position as Roy Keane? <laughs> oh no, I'm a defender. <laughs> and are you hoping that someday you might get to, to his uh, status and that you might end up playing for a big uh, premiership club or something like that? Um, uh, no, I don't think so, but um, I'm hoping to become one anyway. And did Roy give you any tips? On... Um, no, he just kind of nodded his head and said hi to us and I shook his hand. <laughs> oh, you have the photograph now. I'm sure you're going to print it out and frame it, are you? We already did. Oh, you did already? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what did your friends say when you told them? Oh, they were, they were screaming. They were just as excited as me. I'd say you weren't able to sleep last night with the excitement, were you? Yeah, I know. My friends were jealous of me, like... <laughs> you can hold that over them now if they're ever slagging you off about anything and you can say well you know I have my picture taken with Roy Keane yeah <laughs> so are you back to the beach today then um no I'm going to Kinsale today okay so you'll have to keep your eye out now again for another superstar in Kinsale mm, yeah <laughs> Dara listen thanks so much Dara you're what age are you Dara I'm 10 you're 10. So what class have you got into now in September? Um, I'm going into fifth class. Into fifth class. So you're going to have a really good uh, summer holiday story to tell your class when you go back to school. Definitely. <laughs> and are you enjoying your summer so far, yeah? Yeah, it's been brilliant so far. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, listen, th- thanks so much for, for talking to me this morning. Best of luck. I hope uh, that you you cherish that moment now in your photograph and uh, best of luck with everything. Thanks very much. That was Dara Mori, 10 years old from the city, was on Yall Beach yesterday and met his hero, Roy Keane. The Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. With localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee. Backed by Board Gosh. Now the Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards are back and we want you to nominate places and services that are the best in Cork. The categories are Best Hairdresser, Best Beauty Salon, Best Bar, Best Barber, Best Breakfast, Best Coffee, Best Takeaway, Best Local Tradesperson, Best Gym, Best Restaurant, Best Workplace, Best Hotel and Best Burger. So if you have anybody for any of those categories that you want to nominate, go to 96fm.ie and nominate your favourite. The Best of Cork Awards with localheroes.ie Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee backed up by Borthgosh Energy on Cork's 96FM. Welcome back, Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan on this Wednesday morning. Uh, Yesterday we were speaking about trying to keep your pets cool during the heatwave and a caller did get in touch with us with a query about, you know, they were going back to work later this week and they wanted to know what they would do to keep their dog um, cool and AJ Nagel has been in touch with us to say put ice into their water bowl ice packs in their beds or wherever they lie down put their treats peanut butter or biscuits whatever their treats are into an ice cube tray and fill and freeze so they can lick them do not take them walking
working during the day early late is safe so thank you very much for that AJ um, and uh, if you have anything else that you want to add to the um, to to what we've been talking about here on the show this morning you can get in touch 0850 715 996 The lines are live and we're ready to talk Can we just talk Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Welcome back, Fiona, in for PJ Coogan today on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Now, just before the news, I spoke to 10-year-old Dara Mori, who met Roy Keane on the beach yesterday in Yall. And dear Mr. O'Leary has been in touch on WhatsApp to say, well done, Roy, what a legend. And I think that so many people in Cork have that same feeling about Roy Keane. They just love him and they just think he's a total legend. So uh, thanks again to Dara for talking to us about that. Now, to something completely different here... um, on the opinion line this morning uh, for a lot of women the menopause can be a very scary phase of life a lot of young women don't really know what's going on what's coming up ahead of them and they have a lot of questions and there is a support group now that has been set up in Cork called the Cork Menopause Support Group Um, and it's um, joining me on the line now is Shanti Tejai Carroll good morning Shanti hello good morning Shanti we seem to have uh, lost Shanti there, I think. Um, try and get Shanti back on the line there, will we? With PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 83 On Cork's 96FM. Now, before the break, I was talking about the Cork Menopause Support Group and Shanti Tejai Carroll joins me now on the line. Shanti, good morning. Good morning, Fiona. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome and thanks for coming on the show this morning. Um, Shanti, just tell me a little bit about why the Cork Menopause Support Group was set up. Well, first of all, I have to say that the um, the group was set up by a mistake because I was oh. part of a, of a larger national group called the Irish Menopause run by uh, Sally Ann Brady. And she's the lady who got uh, that big conversation started in May with a different um, radio station in, in the country. Um, so the plan was for um, coffee groups to, to form um, one for each uh, county. Mm. Um, but I had mistaken that to be a Facebook group. So I set up a Facebook group with uh, two other ladies, uh, with Suba Priya and uh, Valerie Omani. And um, so we decided to just keep it because a lot of people had an interest in joining. Have you had many people join the group? Um, Well, we started last month and we have about 400 women who have joined. So it is very popular. And what kind of questions do people um, ask? Like what kind of support are they looking for? Well, mostly people are talking about symptoms and then wondering... um, is this perimenopause or is this menopause? Because there is a, a huge gap in knowledge that, that we women of this this age have. Um, we just don't really know when or what is menopause because all throughout the years we've been told, um, you know, your periods will stop and you will get some hot flushes and that will be it. And, you know, it, it's not, not as simple as that. And what kind of age would people start getting that meri- many, perimenopause at? Um, well, the, the literature says from 45 right. onwards can be perimenopause, but more and more we see that women are 
40-ish, and they are already suffering a lot of um, symptoms that would be considered to be perimenopausal. So I, I would just have to say that when we talk about menopause, basically what we're saying is that women have stopped their monthly bleeds. And if you are over 50, that would be um, 12 months with no monthly bleed, so 12 consecutive months. And then if you are younger than 50, you actually have to count 48, sorry, not 48, 24 um, consecutive months. So you need to count all the months that you don't have a monthly bleed and you could come all the way up to month seven or month 10 and that happens to a lot of women and then they might get a period and then they have to start to count all over again. So you only um, diagnose the menopause retrospectively because you don't know when you've had your last period. So a calendar becomes a really good friend of yours and you you really need to track your... um, your periods uh, so that you know when you have actually reached menopause and then that that day that you realize that you are that you have had a bleed for 12 months or or 24 months that is when you are in menopause then that's when postmenopause begins so you you're never really in menopause for years and years and years it's it's just a, a time um, that it that it is diagnosed, and then for the rest of your life you are postmenopausal. So it's not like you're going through it, or you know you've had it and now you've gone past it and it's in your past or anything. Just for the rest of a woman's life, once mm. she has stopped the bleed, she becomes postmenopausal, and it, that doesn't mean that oh everything is fine now and she doesn't have any more periods and she can't have babies. But you know there's loads of things that happen. So there are so many different symptoms and and you could just look at each symptom by itself and then think, well, sure, that doesn't sound bad. I could live with that or, you know, I've already had that Mm. my entire life, like a thinning hair or hair growing in funny places. Um, Women also talk about um, insomnia or fatigue. You know, obviously there is the hot flushes. Everybody talks about the hot flushes, but then there are so many other symptoms that, you know, you just don't want to talk to other people about that over, you know, a cup of coffee when you're meeting your your coffee group, mm. or your yoga group or your walking group. You're not going to start talking um, mid-walk or, or mid-biscuit in your mouth about something as serious as vaginal atrophy or mm. a change in libido or the fact that you have memory issues and you're feeling that maybe you have early onset of dementia because that happens a lot as well. And women become really frightened thinking that there is all sorts wrong with them. I mean, I have spoken to women who thought that they were suffering from Alzheimer's. Other women thought that they were dying, that they were slowly mm. dying. There was so much wrong with them. And it's, if you don't know what's wrong with you and you do go to your healthcare provider and sometimes they don't know because there is a huge lack of training. Um, it is coming along, though. There are some fantastic GPs around. Um, it's just very difficult not to be heard. And because there is such a lack of knowledge, we just don't have the vocabulary. Yeah. So just Im- imagine you're going to a country, suppose, you know, you're, you're Irish and you're going abroad and you're going to Japan, for example. And, you know, something is wrong with you there, you become sick, maybe you have a UTI or, you know, anything that could happen to anybody, man or woman, doesn't really make a difference. And you do go to the hospital and they don't speak English. How do you tell them what's wrong with you? 
So, and Shanti, I suppose, um, I know you were talking there earlier about the perimenopause starting in women in their 40s, but um, I see there that the Mayo Clinic is actually saying that it can start in, in the 30s. So for a woman who's in her 30s and is going through the menopause, the perimenopause, um, I suppose because we have a, this idea, I think, that um, you know the menopause is something that affects women who are of a lot older age. So if somebody in their 30s is beginning to experience these symptoms, as you say, it must be a very frightening experience because they're not expecting the word menopause to come into that. Exactly. Um, there are also very young women who suffer from um, um, it's called POI, uh, premature ovarian insufficiency. So it's basically the ovaries running out of eggs. Now, that needs to be diagnosed by a specialist. That's not mm. something a friend can diagnose you with over a cup of coffee. Um, women also go into um, menopause um, if they take particular medications. So certain uh, cancer treatments can put you into menopause. Other women go into surgically um, induced menopause if mm. they have um, their ovaries removed. And sometimes they get their uterus moved and the ovaries are left behind, but then they still feel a huge change and they start to experience some um, symptoms of the menopause or the perimenopause. Indeed, even there a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking to a young girl from Cork who um, had endometriosis and had to have her womb removed and went through the menopause and she was in her um, late 20s, I think, early 20s. And, uh, you know, that's a huge, you know, transition for somebody of that age to have to go through. Yeah, it's very frightening. And um, we we just don't know a whole lot about it, to be honest. We know how we feel, and that's and that's about it. And if you are in your twenties or your thirties, who are you going to talk to about mm. this? Um, you know, if your friends aren't going through it, and even a woman who's in her forties and fifties might know might not know the exact um, signs and symptoms of a menopause. So if you start talking about something as simple as and it's not simple at all. But if you were to mention a hot flush, you know, you're 35 years old and you're thinking you're having a hot flush, your friends could just turn around and say, I don't be silly. And, you know, you're just dismissed and, and not taken seriously. And that, that is hurtful when, when you are suffering from something that is so debilitating because a hot flush is not just a hot flush. Mm. You know, it, it is a very serious symptom. You look at uh, the culture and, you know, how we joke about the menopause and even in television programs how... Um, jokes are made about periods and hot flushes. It's no joke. And it doesn't just affect them. the woman who is experiencing it. It affects her husband. It affects her children. It affects her, you know, her, her sisters, if she has mm. sisters or her siblings. It, it affects everybody. So women going through the menopause is not just a female issue. This affects society. There are so many women of menopausal and perimenopausal age who are in the workforce, surely that's going to affect what's happening in the workforce. And is there a diagnosis for perimenopause? Because, you know, I know you were talking there earlier about the GPs and stuff. And, um, you know, is it, is it something that we're, we're just coming around to now? A lot, like, you know, I suppose if, if somebody is in their 50s or whatever and they go in with all of these symptoms and the doctor can say to them, OK, yeah, definitively, yes, you have menopause. But like, what about perimenopause then? Yeah, well, usually women go to the doctor with with certain symptoms. More than likely, it is perimenopause, mm. first and foremost. So it is really easy to diagnose somebody with menopause because, you know, they haven't had a bleed for 12 or 24 months. And that's how you diagnose the menopause. But the perimenopause is a lot more difficult to, to diagnose. And um, there are guidelines from the UK um, 
and they set out like, like how to go about diagnosing a, a woman with perimenopause and it, it's done basically by symptoms so you just listen to the woman and you just listen to what she says and that is how you diagnose sometimes blood tests get done in, in more um in, in more complicated cases now i am not a healthcare professional so i can't tell you um exactly what kind of blood test is done and and for what but sometimes women are on the mirena coil which is mm. um a contraceptive um, and that can mask certain um, symptoms. So, you know, you could be in your early 50s and you could have a myrena coil and a lot of women don't have a monthly bleed on the myrena coil. So how would you know is, you know, you have reached that 12-month period without mm-hmm. a bleed. We don't. So this is where you go to somebody who is trained and knows what they're talking about. And hopefully that is your GP. Have you got any um, um, advice for people who are going through this? Like, is there any treatments? I know that uh, HRT is a treatment, but are there any other things that people can do for themselves? Yeah, so HRT is coming back into vogue, as we say, and um, that is one one thing you can do, but it's not suitable for everybody. So there are other more natural uh, treatments they don't work for everybody um, in exactly the same way where, you know, somebody might like a pint and somebody else will go for a different kind of alcoholic drink and say, well, you know, that just doesn't agree with me and I'm going to drink this particular drink. And the same with ice cream flavors. Somebody will love pistachio and the other one will love um, chocolates. You know, our bodies will uh, react better to certain herbs and other supplements than, than they will for another person. So it's all very uh, personal. But again, there are nutritionists and herbalists who are trained and um, can advise a person. And this is the kind of thing that we talk about in the group. So somebody will come along and we don't diagnose anybody. We don't um, say to people, well, uh, we think we, you need to go on HRT or you need to go and try this particular herb or tincture. That like, We we don't um, do any of that. We, we're just mm. basically saying, oh, gosh, my hair is thin or, you know, I don't like my whichever ba- body cream it is making me even more itchy than I already was. And and then we just say, well, you know, this worked for me. And then somebody else might come along in the same chat and say, well, that actually didn't work for me at all. So we get a really good discussion of, of you know, some yeah. so, some very simple and lighthearted things. But then there are some heart-wrenching stories about, you know, how women are just not coping. And, and very often people get, women get uh, prescribed antidepressants because some antidepressants can actually help with... Um, the facial motor symptoms, which are the hot flushes and the night sweats. Um, but again, the guidelines that I was talking about, the UK guidelines, um, they say that uh, antidepressants should not be the first part of call when it comes to perimenopausal or menopausal symptoms. Um, so, yeah. And Shanti, if anybody does want to uh, get in touch with you guys, if they want to share their story and hear other stories, how can they find you? Well, they can log on to Facebook. At the moment, we are only on Facebook. Okay. Um, the group is called Cork Menopause Support, and we do ha- we're very strict on privacy. Um, so there are rules that everybody in the group needs to stick by, and um, you only get admitted to the group if you have agreed to the group rules. And also there are another three membership questions um, that people need to click, and only then will you be allowed into the group because... 
we can't just allow people in who are not going to mm. obey by the group rules. And one, because it is for women in Cork, you are going to meet somebody from the group in real life. Yeah. And so one, one of the rules we have is, um, you know, you could read something in the group, <clears throat> excuse me, and this could be your child's teacher. This could be the lady at the till in your local supermarket. And under no circumstances are you allowed to approach this person and say, oh, that thing you were talking about in the group, you know, that's just absolutely not on. You cannot do that. And so this is why it's so important that everybody who wants to be in the group must click all the, the three um, membership questions and agree to the group, group rules. Brilliant, Shanti. Thanks so much for joining me on the Opinion Nine and Corks ninety six FM this morning. For anybody who wants to go onto that group, it's Cork Menopause Support Group. Now, with the hot weather, there's so many of us flocking to beaches all over Cork. And one thing that we've really noticed over the last while is the amount of jellyfish that seem to be washing up on the shores and in and around the tide. And joining me now on the line is Dr. Tom Doyle. Good morning, Dr. Doyle. Good morning. Um, why are we seeing so many jellyfish coming up to the shore at this time of the year? Um, this is this is the jellyfish season. It's something we see every year, just like, you know, you see flowers bloom at certain times of the year. It's the same with jellyfish. They have uh, a particular time of year when, you, when they really appear in our, in our coastal waters. And it's part of their life cycle, basically. Why? What, what, are they coming in to breed or are they coming in to die or what? Um, it, it's, that's a good question, but likely what we're seeing is, say the the moon jellyfish or the common jellyfish, the one that everybody would recognise is the is the transparent one that has four pink rings in it, and they don't really sting. Mm. And they're the most abundant jellyfish that we do have in our waters, and um, they have more of a coastal distribution. So that's it's not that they're coming in from somewhere, coming in from the ocean or anything like that. They always live in our coastal seas. They have a they have a benthic stage or a stage, a part of their life cycle that lives on the seafloor, and um, that's really coastal. And um, and so in January, February, the baby jellyfish are actually released into our coastal seas, but they're only they're less than a millimeter in diameter, so we don't see them. So actually, these jellyfish that we see now, they're in our waters all year round, but we don't see them. They're, it's only in June, July that they're really big and visible, and, and we see them in these large groups or blooms of jellyfish that we that that. Um, uh, people are talking about. And when they're along the, the sand like that, are they, can they still sting people? When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Um, yes, they can, because like... 
the thing about jelly, all jellyfish sting and the the moon jellyfish or the common jellyfish that we, we, we'd all be familiar with. Mm. Um, I say they don't sting in the sense that if you, if you touch if you touched off them, you don't really get a sting. But they are actually the stinging mechanism that's in them is actually firing. But for some reason, we're not quite sure why. But their stinging capsules don't penetrate our skin, so we don't the venom isn't injected into us. Right. But for some of the other species, like the the compass jellyfish, which we have here down in Cork that's very abundant right now. Um, that can give you something like a nettle stain. Or then the lion's mane jellyfish, which everybody fears, which has mm. more of a, a northern distribution. It's found typically from Dublin, across to Galway and north of that. But we do get individuals down here. Um, that can cause a very, a very bad sting and uh, even put you in hospital. And if you do get a sting, what can you do? Or Because like, I, I thankfully have never had a sting from one, but some people <laughs> say that it's very sore. Um, yeah, well, you know, like if you get stung by a nettle or something, you, you always run for a dock leaf and stuff. But, mm. but with, with jellyfish, there's a lot of confusion out there. There's a lot of, um, you know, we've all watched Friends and uh, we've all watched that episode where uh, 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 Monica gets stung and Joey has to help her out by uh, uh, by peeing on, on the yeah. thing but but you know that that actually makes it worse um, and I've myself and some colleagues we've actually done some research on this or we've done a lot of research on this yeah. because um, it's the one question as, a, as somebody who studies jellyfish it's the one question I get asked all the time how do you treat a jellyfish thing yeah. but what what we would recommend is you use vinegar because um, the first thing to think is when you get stung by a jellyfish only night only one or two percent of their stinging capsules on a tentacle fire. And a stinging capsule is just something like a tiny little balloon. It's microscopic, you can't see them. But inside that is a little harpoon that's coiled up. And if that touches off you, that can inject venom into you. But only less than, you know, two percent of those actually fire when a tentacle touches you. Mm-hmm. So if a tentacle is on your arm, um, you know, only some of those things have fired and injected venom into you. But if you apply the wrong treatment or the rinse solution, so if you use urine, if you use, um, uh, I don't know, uh, alcohol or anything mm. like that, it causes the rest of all those stinging capsules. So be, there might be hundreds of thousands of these stinging capsules on your arm. It will cause all of them to fire and inject that venom into you and make it worse. Okay. So okay. Whereas, ven- whereas vinegar for, for pretty much all species actually stops that from happening. It actually stops that, um, stops these stinging capsules from firing. So no more, no more venom will be put into you. But that doesn't, you're still stung. So, you, you know, the vinegar doesn't stop you from, from you've already been stung. So mm. how do you treat that? Well, the recommended solution that we found or uh, treatment for that is hot water. That's where you actually apply hot water. Do you know okay. the weaver fish? If you step on a weaver fish and um, you put your foot in a hot, wa- uh, hot water about 40, 40 mm. degrees Celsius, um, like hot bath water, that's what you're typically looking at, or a hot shower. That's the type of treatment that you need to do. And look, there's a lot of confusion out there. There's a lot of sites that say different things. And I know the HSC and I know Water Safety Ireland. A lot of these different places are, are, are suggesting different things. They're suggesting that you don't use a vinegar and that you use a cold uh, ice pack. But we've gone out and we have shown that these things don't work. And even if you apply seawater uh, rinse solution, that can make it worse as well. So, okay. And I was actually involved in the initial studies that came up with those HSE recommendations but it's only the last couple of years now we've shown that they're wrong and so we're slowly trying to get those changed so that um, people know exactly how to treat a jellyfish thing and that's vinegar first you rinse with vinegar and then you use a hot water um, treatment 
and no urine at all. <laughs> no urine at all or anything like that. But um, yeah. but it is, you know, look, there's a lot of jellyfish around right now. And that's, look, that's part of what they do. They're yeah. always there. They occur in these large numbers and stuff like that. But just, when, you, um, when you see yeah. them coming in in the water there, like, is it okay to go swimming? Like, are they likely to sting you when they're in the water? Oh, like, they're... If you bump into one, yeah, you'll probably get stung. Okay. But, um, but but the thing about it is, um, you know, there's a, there's some areas where the lifeguards typically have an idea what's going on. Right. And okay. they'll be able to tell you, say, look, yeah, there's compass jellyfish in the water. But the thing about it, it's like, you know, if you go for a walk in the field, there's a chance you're going to get stung by a nettle or you brush <laughs> off a nettle or something like that. That's there's, it. That's there's, it. That, there's something similar with a, with a jellyfish, you know, there's... For the, for the common jellyfish, they don't sting at all and you'll be fine. Right. So you don't have to worry, but you can swim through them. But it's the compass jellyfish that people kind of get a bit scared of. But mm. it's something like a nettle sting. And um, and we're lucky down here in Cork. We don't really have the lion's mane jellyfish, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, but we have, in the last couple of years, seen the Portuguese man of war appear every October. Mm. But typically we're out of the water then and we're not swimming, except yeah. for the hardcore open water swimmers. <laughs> so you're not really to worry about there nothing to worry about there listen Dr Tom Doyle expert on jellyfish thank you very much for keeping us up to date there on that now um, July is sarcoma awareness month sarcoma is a bone cancer that's often described as the forgotten cancer Ruth Walsh is a 36 year old woman from Cork who was diagnosed with sarcoma in 2016 and she joins me now this morning Ruth good morning morning Fiona how are you I'm very well how are you now Good, I'm great, thanks. (laughs) So just tell me a little bit, uh, bring me back to 2016 when you started getting symptoms, like, or did you get symptoms? How did you discover that you had sarcoma? Um, Yeah, so I'm a physiotherapist myself um, and I suppose I'd never had any injuries or anything like that before. I'd always been very lucky. I ride horses myself, but I don't do any running sports or anything like that. So I think when I just got this really random pain in my, my right ankle, um, I really had no idea what it was. I thought I had just done something maybe riding, you know. I, I wasn't overly concerned initially, um, but it just progressively got more painful over kind of the course of three to four months. So I suppose I had kind of done the, my own exam on it in one sense, you know, mm. from a physical perspective. And really, I, I just couldn't figure out why it was so painful when I was walking. Um, so I decided to go get um, um, an MRI done to, to see. I felt that it was something, you know, soft tissue. I never, uh, you know, in, in my wildest dreams imagined that it would be anything more sinister than that. Um, so, but I suppose a couple of days before I was scheduled for the MRI, it got extremely painful. I had been walking all day at a, at a horse event and um, I actually went to A&E and uh, got an X-ray. Um, now the X-ray actually showed uh, a huge mass in my the bottom of my right ankle. Um, now the the doctors at the time felt that it was just um, a cyst, but they they you know they said oh you need to go get this followed up. So I continued on to get the MRI two days later, and I'd say I had only come out of the MRI centre in Cork, and I was sitting in the car when I got a phone call. Uh, to say that uh, I needed to go to the hospital straight away um, and actually when I got there they had reviewed my x-ray um, and they were uh, they felt that it was something a lot more sinister they couldn't give me any diagnosis at the time mm. and what followed on over the course of three to four months was a lot of toing and froing on a diagnosis um, and that's one of the big things with sarcomas is that they are sometimes quite difficult to diagnose there's a lot of variance in them Mm. Um, and in my case, it was a really difficult diagnosis. It swung from being a benign um, aneurysmal bone cyst 
uh, to possibly a tumour, a, a malignant tumour, but they couldn't tell. I had biopsies done in Cork and in Dublin and my results and scans were sent in, sent to the UK for analysis. And again, it came back very, um, they were on the fence regarding what it was. Um, and it was just very, very difficult not getting um, a clear diagnosis early on. Um, I did have surgery in Dublin and to remove the, 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 we'll say the tumour, um, uh, Mr O'Toole did it, um, the surgery in CASA and uh, he reconstructed the leg. Mm. Um, and he, but he did, he felt at the time he was again unsure with the pathology, what it was. Um, and I suppose I was clinging on to hope that it was still something that it was benign. Um, but it was a huge tumour. And I suppose at the back of my mind, maybe we always felt it was something more sinister than that. Mm. Um, but eventually, um, after I had that reconstructive surgery done uh, within a month, it, um, the wound had broken down and it was, the tumour was reoccurring. And uh, in December of 2016, I went back to a review in Dublin and um, he basically said that he couldn't save my leg regardless of whether it was benign or cancerous. The tumour had infiltrated soft tissue and uh, there really was no hope of saving the leg. So still at that point, I didn't have a definitive diagnosis of cancer. Mm. Um, But I did have, unfortunately, they had to amputate the leg below the knee um, in December of 2016. Uh, and it was only after that, um, it was only after in, in the January, actually, that I, after the samples were sent away again to the UK, that they eventually came back with an official diagnosis. And um, so it's a, a rare variant. Um, it's a telangiectatic osteosarcoma. So it's a, a variant of a bone tumour, we'll say. And like, obviously, you're you're 36 now, so you were only... Uh, 31, yeah, 31 31 at the time, yeah. So to lose your leg at 31, like how do you even process something like that mentally? Yeah, it's um, still, I think still to this day, I still still sometimes don't believe that it actually happened to me. Hmm. Um, I suppose being a physio, I I have worked with amputees in the past. There's a certain amount of, I've had a lot of exposure through my work to different things. I worked in acute services in in Limerick Regional Hospital. So I kind of seen a lot of stuff and and helped a lot of people with with rehab and that. But you don't ever think it's going to be you. Um, So it's, it's still to this day something that's difficult to process. And I think... Still, every morning I'm a bit, I you know, pull back the covers and I still kind of look and kind of go, geez, I just can't believe that, you know. And now you just, you know, you move on. Life is busy and the momentum of life pulls you forward. Mm. But you certainly are, I think it's still for myself, but especially for my family as well and, and for my, my husband now, Steve, like it's still such a devastating blow, really. Um, but I'm lucky to be here. So Yeah. I have to I have to think about that all the time, you know, it was lose the leg or lose your life and that was it, like, it was very black or white, so. Yeah, very black and white, yeah, I mean, like, it's such a tough decision, but really there is no kind of, uh, you know, thinking about it, like, you have to obviously save your life, but um, how how are you now, like, is the, like, do you still have to go back for regular checkups or? Yeah, it's, it's a very ongoing thing when it, I suppose it's not just having the, the leg, you know, your leg amputated, you're mm. left with this kind of lifelong disability in some way. Um, but also then I had chemo straight away so um, I had nine months of chemotherapy and unfortunately my cancer had spread to my lungs by the time that it was diagnosed and this is where early diagnosis is key you know we will never know whether or not if mine had been diagnosed at an earlier point or a clearer diagnosis 
you know, who's to know whether or not it would have spread or not, but it's, it's mm. why early diagnosis is so important. But in my case, it had spread and sarcomas um, very commonly spread to the lungs. Um, so it had metastasized, unfortunately, um, by the time I started the chemo. But I did have a lung resection um, in the July of that of the 2017 of that year um, to remove um, a tumor in my lung and continued chemo then afterwards. But that is, I'm coming up, I will be five years um, next October. Mm. So we're currently kind of the four-year mark. So I have done probably better than um, was anticipated. Um, I have regular scans every three to four months, um, but I've just gotten, I suppose you just get on your life kind of, as I said, moves forward regardless. And uh, I've been lucky. I've been very, very lucky. Um, I suppose the prognosis wise was given about a 30% chance of making the five year mark. So I'm at the four year mark um, without a reoccurrence. So I suppose I feel very, very lucky compared to, to others that have a similar story to mine. And like, you know, obviously it's brilliant now that you're doing much better than anticipated. You must have a really strong mental drive to bring you forward. I know you have your family there to to pick you up and bring you forward, as you were saying. But like for yourself, I mean, you must just be such a strong person mentally. I think I wouldn't have said that I was probably before this. I think mm-hmm. I was I had a very I was very lucky all my life. I was very healthy and I've never really been put in a situation where I've had to, you know, had to really kind of um I suppose, you know, find your inner grit, but for me I kind of just I love 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 life. <laughs> you know, I'm just yeah. one of those people I just I enjoy, you know, people and my horses and I suppose for me it was a case of you know, do you want to, you know, you have to fight sometimes for what you want. So I just, I just had so much to live for that it was a case of just, you know, put the head down, do as much as you can and hope for the best because really it is just, you know, the look of the draw, whether your chemo works for you or not. And the chemo was very difficult and I have been left with, with multiple side effects, but there are things that can be managed, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And I suppose sometimes when people look at, you know, people's stories from the outside, they think, oh, you know, you must be, you know, you know, mentally really strong and you're doing all these things and you're great. And you, you do, but, you know, it isn't all um, rose gardens for sure. You know, there's an awful lot of um, kind of effort that you have to make every day to mm-hmm. kind of keep going sometimes. But it's always worth it kind of when you go to bed at night, even if you've had a kind of a tough day or if I push myself with the horses, especially. But I always feel at the end of the day, you feel better for pushing yourself. So you kind of I kind of try to, you know, find ways around um, the inconvenience sometimes of, of having, you know, a prosthetic leg as well. Mm. Um, I'm always trying to look for maybe a solution. I don't always get it right. I get it wrong kind of more times than I get it right. But it's about just trying to find ways around it and I think um, and finding an inspiration for yourself like for me my horses are a huge um, huge huge kind of interest um, and they're really therapeutic as well in, in lots of ways so that's been for me something that has really helped drive me through kind of the darker days I suppose yeah and I'm sure you yourself are an inspiration to so many people who are listening to your story this morning. Ruth, what kind of advice would you give to somebody? You were you were talking er, there earlier about um, early intervention and yeah. um, early diagnosis and how important it is. What should people be looking for and what do they do if they have any, uh, if they suspect that they might have it? The most important thing is just do not ignore any symptom that doesn't go away. Um, And I suppose that's the key thing, whether it's pain, a lump, 
if it's there for any greater time, even if it's there just a week or more and you're concerned, you need to go and investigate that. And the thing about osteosarcomas and the soft tissue element of sarcoma is that it often doesn't have very clear cut symptoms. Um, it also it's also quite um, uh, it's quite an occurrence in children and in young teenagers, especially osteosarcomas particularly. So often people will tell you, oh, you just did something playing sport or you know, it's a growing pain or you'll hear a lot of these things. Um, and for parents as well, if their child is complaining of, you know, the knee pain or the ankle pain or the hip pain, and they're constantly complaining, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks, just investigate everything. You're not mm. being, um, and don't think you're being a hypochondriac or you're being this or that or an overly concerned parent. This cancer is out there and it is um, 15% of all childhood cancers are osteosarcomas. I think we need to remember that as well. And it's 250 people a year in Ireland are diagnosed with sarcoma. So while it's a small percentage, it's out there and it affects men, women, children, babies, older people. It's everybody. So ignore nothing. Get it checked out and get a second opinion as well. If you're not happy, get a second opinion. And that's really important. Don't just take one person's opinion, even if they are experts. There are other people out there. Keep investigating until you get an answer. Um, And that is so important. Ruth Walsh, listen, thanks so much for joining us on the line this morning. Ruth is a real inspiration there, the way she looks out for others with sarcoma awareness and it's great news that she's doing so well. And we have another bit of good news now to Emma. Good morning. How are you? Emma, you spoke to me there in the last hour about your passport. What's the update? I did. I found it. My friend told me to ring Poker Guard Station. So I gave him a quick ring there and I'm... They, uh, they, some kind person obviously saw it on their way to work or something and they dropped it in so Fantastic. we're going over there now to get in I'll be able to do my theory test so I just wanted to thank the person who dropped it in because it was just it saved my day <laughs> That's so brilliant and do you have any idea what time you'll be doing your theory test at? Um, probably around like 2 yeah. Okay. Brilliant. And hopefully now, <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, hopefully now all of the drama around your passport won't put you off. <laughs> hopefully we'll keep our fingers crossed. Yeah. So just for anybody who wasn't listening earlier this morning, Emma, you were walking into town and you lost your passport. Yeah. And you were heading in to do your driver theory test at nine o'clock this morning and you needed it. <laughs> I really did need it. And I'm just so thankful that somebody dropped it in so soon. It was just so good. And thank you so much for highlighting it as well because it was just such a big help. Yeah, yeah, no hassle at all. Glad that we could help. Well, listen, best of luck, Emma, with your driver theory test. And again, thank you to whoever that kind person was who found Emma's passport. Um, She lost it around the College Road area this morning on her way to do the driver theory test. And she had been waiting for six months to do the test. So she was kind of very keen to get it done today. So thanks a million to that kind person who handed it in to Toker Garda Station. Now, next is UCC student Alicia Joy O'Sullivan, who is um, appearing before an Oireachtas committee uh, very shortly. Good morning, Alicia. Morning, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, thanks for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning. Alicia, why are you appearing before the Oireachtas committee? I'm actually just off the committee oh. um, this morning with Professor Louise Crowley. Um, we were coming before uh, part of a campaign that I started called Safety Over Stigma. Um, and essentially back in April what happened was an Instagram account was made under my name and had taken photos from my own public Instagram account but alongside those um, they had also posted other photos of women nude photos and essentially they were purporting them to be mine as they posted alongside my name in an attempt to try and sell this sort of pornographic subscription um, to this website 
Um, and that's essentially what happened. And it's actually now illegal under Coco's law not to just post someone's mm. own nude images, but to purport um, other nude images to be someone else. So I think that's that's a really key thing that's come into Irish law. And I think it's it's a good opportunity for me, at least, and safety over stigma to be able to spread awareness about it. And you went before the Oireachtas Committee. What kind of a respe- reception did you get? A really positive one, a really open one. I think we realised that... Um, Although we have the law, sometimes the law isn't everything and that, you know, people need to be aware of the law. Um, and also in terms of Angarda Siakana, when I first went to report um, what had happened to me, um, you know, they told me that what had happened to me was not illegal when in fact it was. And it, as I said, comes under the new COCO's law, thankfully. So I suppose in terms of training, in terms of public awareness, you know, I wasn't aware that there was a Divisional Protective Services Unit, which was special specially trained to deal with these sort of issues. So I think it's it's really, we've all realised that it's great that we have Coco's Law, but firstly, we need more protection for, we need social media companies to take more responsibility online. And then secondly, as a country and as a society, we need to be more aware of our rights. Um, we need to be more aware of things that are out there to support us when these things happen. So what's going to happen now following this committee meeting? So essentially the legislation is in what's called pre-legislative scrutiny, which is a bit of a mouthful, but (laughs) they're bringing in, um, bringing in different organizations, different groups. They have an Australian group in at the moment, I believe they're called eSafety, who essentially have a media commission who take responsibility for codes of practice for online social media companies. So this is what we're hopefully going to set up in Ireland, an independent media commission which will essentially kind of look over social media companies and look at how they're behaving and give them codes of practice. So it's a really, really amazing thing, considering we have some of the biggest social media companies based here in Ireland, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So we have a real opportunity here to to make the internet a safer place, not just for everyone, but especially for children. You know, there's so many dangers on the internet for them. So we have a big opportunity to improve the bill as it stands and hopefully see it come into practice very soon. And um, obviously it's it's great, as you said, and it's so much progress that's been made. Um, just remind us, when, when what happened to you, uh, like how did you feel? Like how, what way did that affect you? I guess it was a bit of a shock uh, for a while. I, I, I suppose, you know, I mean, I'm not the only one every day. I see a girl on Instagram and it ha- the same thing happens to them. And it's just frustrating. Um, it shouldn't be happening. Someone should not be able to go online and sign up under your name mm. and do anything, let alone post such explicit photos of someone else, you know, and you don't know where those photos came from um, or who they are of. So it's a very distressing thing to happen to anyone. I wouldn't wish it on anyone else, which is why I'm here uh, with Safety Over Stigma, trying to just do something that we can, you know, improve the situation and hopefully uh, put some sort of an end to it or at least create some repercussions for the people who do do it. Have you been contacted by lots of young women in this country who have experienced similar to what you went through? Absolutely, yeah. I posted kind of the story of what happened to me on Twitter the evening it happened Mm. and it just blew up. I got loads of public kind of, you know, retweets back, but I also got a lot of private messages from women who said that it actually took a week for Instagram to take down the account, the fake one that is, which Mm. it's just, you know, just increases the damage that is already being done um just not to just distress to yourself but also to your name you know nowadays employers are always 
looking people up online and looking at their behaviour online and something like that coming up is just, it's not right and uh, it's not good for anyone. Brilliant. Um, so, Alicia, well done on um, what you did today. And we'd be watching this story with interest over the next couple of months to see that everything that was promised at that meeting is going to come to fruition, I'm sure. Thanks, Fiona. Thank okay, you. thank you. That was Alicia Joyce Hose, Joy O'Sullivan, who went to the Oireachtas uh, Committee there today with Louise Crowley. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Welcome back, Fiona Corcoran in for PJ Coogan on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96 FM this week. Um, just in relation to the vaccine cert line, when I opened the show this morning, um, I said that there were now two numbers in operation. There was the previous number, 1-800-851-504. They've added a new number now due to the amount of calls coming through. And that number is 1-800-807-008. That's 1-800-807-008. Now, we have had... Um, a caller contacted the show this morning to say I got my vaccine months ago now my whole family have received their cert I still have not I rang the new number yesterday and gave up after ringing for four hours I'm due to go away next week what am I supposed to do well hopefully you get sorted uh, caller before you get to go away in relation to um, the heat we were talking earlier to, about um, dogs we were speaking yesterday to John Carmody about taking care of your dogs and somebody has contacted the show to say if you can you please ask people to stop walking their dogs in this heat? No matter how big the dog is, one day won't hurt. Imagine you put on a fur coat, took off your socks and walked in this heat. It is cruel. And indeed, John Carmody spoke about that yesterday, about their paws on the hot surfaces that they're not able for that um, and in relation to my um, conversation about the menopause a listener has been in touch to say Fiona you're spot on my mum went through the menopause at 36 after having five babies great you brought this topic up thank you and in relation to my um, conversation with Ruth Walsh who was diagnosed with sarcoma when she was just 31 good morning I can relate to Ruth's story I have osteosarcoma on the end of my spine diagnosed two years ago never had heard of it before was a total shock getting great support from my wonderful friends and of course oncologists in CUH and thanks very much for getting in touch and hopefully you can um, and best of luck I mean sorry in in your recovery and um, if anybody else wants to get in touch with us about anything that we've been speaking to on the show this morning it's 1850 715 996 or 083-396-9696 now my of asylum seekers and she's been raising the situation regarding a number of families who were in direct provision here in Cork. Sheila Sheila Niduval, is that right? Sorry Sheila. Yeah, hi Fiona, how's it going? Very well, very well. Thanks for joining us on the Opinion Line this morning, Sheila. Uh, Sheila, just tell me a little bit about what happened with this family. Um, so five families received uh, letters saying that they were being moved from McCroom um, four of them to Letterkenny and one to Ballinamore in County Leitrim. And uh, it was a, a huge shock because they've been here for two years and I don't know if people have kind of seen news stories and things about how successful our integration has been here in McCroom and um, 
how close the community have gotten to the residents of the hotel. So mm. it was a huge shock for everyone and everyone's very upset. And what was the biggest um, upset? What was the biggest upset for them? Was it the fact that they were moving away from a situation that they have become very used to and that they know the people around them? Or was it the fact that they were being moved um, to an area that they didn't know and that they didn't have um, amenities and, and facilities that they that were suitable for them? Yeah, I think I think it's both. Um, I don't think people would have been quite so upset if they had been moved maybe to somewhere in Cork City or Killarney. But Letterkenny is literally the opposite end of the country mm. um, where they know nobody. And as well as that, I think it's really difficult for the children. So they're being pulled out of school uh, in the middle of summer so they won't get to say goodbye to a lot of their friends. And um, just the whole... It's, the, it's like the department aren't really considering anything above the kind of four walls of an apartment or a, you know, mm. a, a space that you live in. They're not considering what a home actually is, which is your community and your network and your friends and, um, you know, all the connections that people have developed over the two years. And obviously for those people who've moved, um, you know, it's hard to, to settle in a new community, but especially hard for children who are going to a new school and who, you know, don't maybe know anybody in the school. It can be, it can be quite a, a, a big upheaval for a young person. Yeah, I mean, especially if you consider that they've already been through a huge displacement trauma. Um, two years ago, they arrived in Ireland knowing no one. Some of them had no English and essentially they're being uprooted and having to go through the whole thing again. Um, you know, the whole new school, new people, new friends, new neighbours. Um, and for children that have already been through trauma, it's kind of especially difficult, I think. And you said about Letterkenny being the other side of the country and Ballinamore in County Leitrim, um, you were saying there earlier in, in, in your tweet that, um, you know, the... the when they were going to Letterkenny, I think like that they had looked at the county and they had looked at the town and they had looked at what was available there and then all of a sudden one family was taken to Ballinamore and they knew nothing about it and the facilities that were available in Letterkenny just weren't in Ballinamore. Exactly. I mean, that family, the family in question have older, um, older children who would actually have been, when they looked at Letterkenny and the population and the available colleges and further education mm. um, they realised it would actually be quite a suitable place for their children but Ballinamore is a small village in a very rural area and it doesn't have the you know the third level education opportunities or mm. um, youth reach and those kind of things um, as readily available and you'd think you know more suitable for young people would definitely be maybe if they're trying to settle into a place a kind of a town a big town would probably be an easier fit for them rather than a small rural village. And um, is this common practice with direct provision that families can be moved around from place to place? Yes, on very short notice. It happens all the time. And my main issue that I'm trying to raise is that people aren't given a choice. Mm. So, I mean, in the case of the families from Letter Kenny, they received a letter on a Tuesday stating that they were being moved the following Tuesday. Now, they did uh, extend that by a week to give people time to wrap up their affairs. But it's incredibly common. People might be given a week's notice and shipped off to another part of the country. Um, and it just strikes me as, you know, there's, there's a movement now to essentially end direct vision and during the phasing out of direct vision to treat people with more respect and humanity, but um, not 
offering people a choice in where they live and where their children go to school and where they settle seems to me to be like uh, huge. It's just inhumane, I think. Um, and what we would have liked to have seen would have been uh, IPAS to contact the families and say, this accommodation has become available in Letterkenny. It's own door accommodation. You'd have an apartment. You'd have separate bedrooms for your children. Would you like to take this accommodation or would you prefer to stay in the room in the situation that you're in? And mm. I don't think like, that's not a huge ask, just offering people a choice. Do you think that um, for the people who are being moved like that, that they just feel like they're completely forgotten about and that they just, as you said, it's inhumane, that they're not being given any kind of a, a choice in their life whatsoever? Yeah, I think it probably feels a bit like there's someone in an office somewhere signing forms and not thinking of you as a human being who has friends and networks, you know. Mm. Um, kind of like somebody moving cattle or stock around. That's kind of what it seems to me. Like whoever makes these decisions doesn't seem to be considering that these are human beings with families and lives the same as the rest of us. So, so where do the changes need to come about? Like, who needs to be? Um, is this is this a government issue? Is this something else? Yeah, well, the the department, I think, with responsibility for accommodation for asylum seekers, um, I think they would need to look at when they are sourcing suitable accommodation for people that they look at more than, um, say, the amount of people in your family, the amount of children you have, and how many bedrooms you need. I think they need to to broaden it and look at, you know, if you have uh, children who are teenagers or early 20s, do they have access to college? Uh, if will people have access to work um if someone is already like in the case of one of the families um one of the person people was a very trusted employee of a business here in McCroom mm. and they're just being ripped away from their job so you know things like that need to be taken into account i think yeah, because um, I spoke to a family here in Cork last year who were um, facing the prospect of being deported and I was speaking to the young guys who were in school and, you know, they had built up huge friendships in the school. They were participating in different activities in the community and they were even speaking like uh, Cork people, using the phrase like. Yeah. <laughs> do you know, so they do, like a lot of them, a lot of people who are in direct provision really do make a life for themselves within the, the community that they're living in. Yeah, and it's it's the same as anybody would. And to not be offered the choice to do what's best for you and your family, um, it's just we're supposed to be offering people refuge. That's what you know, mm. and asylum, and refuge and asylum is more than an apartment. You know, yeah, it's, uh, it's treating people with kindness and the respect that might have been missing. You know, wherever they were coming from, and offering people a chance to make a life for themselves. And if the if the ideal is and it is the ideal is to have people come to the country and contribute to society, then how are they supposed to do that if they're not offered any sort of respect or choice around their own, uh, you know, their own life essentially? Mm. And uh, you're part of McCroom Friends of Asylum Seekers. Um, is the purpose of that group to try and get and, and bring an end to direct provision, or to just try and, you know, stop this kind of um, practice from from happening, where people are not being given a choice as to where they're going? Well, the the end goal is to campaign to end direct provision because mm. the whole system is it's a horrendous system um, and it's not just the moving people around there are other ways that it infantilizes people and 
uh, you know, disrespects them. But I suppose our main aim when we started up was that we heard that there were asylum seekers coming to McCroom and we wanted to create some kind of a, a welcome. So mm. to have events and community events where we could all meet and get to know each other. And I think we were uh, successful in that. So now um, I suppose my aim is, I don't, I don't think people realise how the system actually works. And, you know, a lot of people in town were very shocked when they heard that these families had gotten a, a letter saying they have to move in a week. And mm. people were saying, they can't do that, can they? But they can, and they do all the time. And I think people need to realise that that's how the whole thing works, you know. These families, you, you mentioned that one of them had a, a job in, in a local shop. They had obviously become part of the McCroom community. Yeah, the whole, all of the families were. Just yesterday, there was a beautiful post from them um, on the McCroom Tidy Towns Facebook page because one of the families were very involved with the Tidy Towns. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was a post by Tidy Towns about how much they'd been missed and uh, what a huge amount they contributed to the town. And it just shows you, you know, it's it's not just me. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the whole community who are really, really upset about this. And I, I understand that people will eventually, you know, move from the Riverside Park because it was always meant to be temporary accommodation. Hmm. But it's just the fact that it's so far away and the fact that they're not given a choice, I think. And this might sound like a silly question, but why do they move them? Is it an issue of overcrowding or what? Well, when they opened the Riverside Park, it was meant to be a temporary accommodation. So people should have only been there for a couple of months before moving on to more permanent accommodation, Hmm. uh, what they call own-door accommodation. So where they would have more of an apartment situation where their family, you know, they would have separate bedrooms for their children and cooking facilities. Um, But I don't think you can leave people somewhere for two years Okay. To start a life there and then suddenly say, oh, hang on, <laughs> here's that apartment we promised you two years ago. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But it's at the other end of the country. Um, so that, that whole system, if you put someone somewhere and give them two years to to set down roots, then you need to deal with the consequences of that, okay. you know, in, in a humane way. And finally, Sheila, have you spoken to the families since they've moved? How are they getting on? They're only actually going this morning. So, oh, okay. Um, they were leaving this morning. I was speaking to some of them yesterday. They were just packing up and saying goodbye. Um, so some of the families are going this morning and then another family tomorrow morning. Okay. And obviously all very upset. Yeah, very upset, yeah. It's, um, we tried, you know, to highlight the, the situation and to see if something could be done whereby they might be offered an alternative mm. somewhere in Cork or Kerry. But... Um, no joy. No, no joy, no. They they appealed and there was no no budging. It's very it's a very sad situation for them. Listen, Sheila, thank you so much for joining me on the opinion line on Cork's ninety six FM this morning. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 996 on Cork's 96FM. Welcome back, Fiona Corker in, in for PJ today and for the rest of this week and hopefully next week too. Now, um, 
a couple of times now on this show we've spoken to a man called Brian McCarthy he was a cork florist who uh, saw his business closed last year as part of the lockdown and um, he used his skills to set up a very impressive farm on top of a rooftop a commercial rooftop in Cork City and um, I've actually been up on, on the rooftop farm myself and it's it's really really good but now he's hoping to incre- to expand that with a new project Brian good morning Hello, good morning, Brian. Hello, Brian. Hi, Fiona. Good morning, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm very well, I'm very well. How are you? Very good now. Um, so, Brian, just tell me a little bit about your um, plan for... Is it an empty is an empty commercial space? Is it in the city centre? Well, we, we started on the empty commercial space, <coughs> excuse me, just off the Colquay. Um, mm. And... I suppose where we're located, um, we have a number of, you know, very large uh, commercial buildings overlooking us. Um, one one being Paul Street Car Park, another being North Main Street Car Park. Mm. And um, obviously they're very, you know, d- during the lockdown especially, I think, you know, the City Council waived uh, parking fees and things. So they were very much utilised in order to try and support businesses but um, what I've noticed I suppose myself is is in North Main Street especially is just the um, I suppose the, the, the slackening of numbers utilising the space there especially since Dunn Stores vacated the lower the ground floor mm. of that building um, and you know the idea kind of came to my head um, what would the viability be of you know converting that space potentially to a uh, or part of that space to to uh, a production area for 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 food and making it a a farm um, and now it, it's purely a, a concept at this stage. It's right. Nothing, you know. There's no there's no formal conversations have taken place on this. Uh, I, I've whispered <laughs> the idea to to members of the city council, but it, it's obviously um, you know a very important. Uh, Part of their infrastructure for the city. Um, but so it's just it's it's just off North Main Street, is it? Just opposite Duns. Um, so well, w- w- where we are is off the Colquay, and yeah. the the concept that we've we've come up with would be how you could, while maintaining the use of the majority of the car parking spaces, how you could also use the car parking space for. Uh, for, for growing and for okay. becoming a production site um, and I suppose trying to um, rejuvenate that, that whole area um, through this kind of uh, approach. So I've, I worked with a, an urban agricultural consultant by the name of Chris Jones and two of us put together a feasibility study of, of that uh, car park space Right. Uh, as I as, as I said, just purely as a concept, um, to see what the viability of it would be, and we were kind of we were pleasantly surprised by, but when we ran the figures and the rest of it, how what the what the potential was for it. Um, I suppose with a car park, you have a number of things going for it. I.e., it's got a it's a very durable, strong structure. It's it's got um, you know it's got all the uh, infrastructure in terms of road access up mm. the whole way through. You've got fire exits. You've got all the the headaches that really we're going through now, for example, on on the rooftop farm site of Car Market Street, they're already in place. So 
it's really a kind of a turnkey site for such a, uh, a, a, a an approach, you know, to, to you could come in with all your infrastructure and basically get going in a very short period of time. And um, you have images of that feasibility study on your Instagram Cork Rooftop Farm and it looks yeah. really, really impressive if it was able to, to happen. There's the grow towers, there's a number of greenhouses, there's even a yeah. little seating area. Um, and, you know, it looks, obviously you'd need to have the gardening skills and the knowledge to be able to develop something like this, but you were able to do it, as you say, on, on, on a rooftop with uh, quite difficult and challenging um uh, um, issues like the, yeah. the trying to get the, the soil even up onto the roof sure. so it is possible to, to do something like this it's not that far-fetched No, absolutely and I think um, you know also you wouldn't be writing off the whole car parking use of that facility it, it would be merely using so the rooftop space there um, is is a prime site. I mean, the views from it are incredible around Cork mm. City, uh, for one. But it's it's quite underutilised. Anytime I've gone over there to have a look, um, you know, it is it is mostly empty. There'd be maybe three, four cars up there at max, um, and that's you know, just it would offset having a production area where you're you're feeding people that are living on the doorsteps of that building and um, you're offsetting the, the travel miles for people that are coming in to use that car parking facility as well as offsetting food miles for, for food in general in the city. So it's a win-win in that respect. Um, and, and you know, you're using, a, I suppose, a big concrete lump and you're kind of turning mm. into something more beautiful and green um, and appealing. And, you know, if it, was, if it were able to be kind of incorporated into the community... Um, then hopefully something that could be used as a springboard maybe to bring a bit more life into that, that part of Cork as well. As I said earlier there, the rooftop uh, farm uh, just off Cormarket Street is very impressive. Um, how are you getting on with this heat, are, like with all the flowers <laughs> that are up there and all the, the vegetables yeah. and plants? How's it going? Uh, it's, a, it's a challenge, but it's it's a nice challenge to have, I guess. Uh, I'd rather have this challenge than too much too much rain and uh, and poor weather, but um, no, we're we're coping fine. We're 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 up early in the morning watering, and we're yeah, the grow towers kind of take care of themselves. There's plenty of ventilation there, so it's yeah. it's, it's working well. And yeah, no, things are going nicely. So we're 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 really happy with us, and we're hoping, you know, in the next I suppose three to four weeks, we're 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 making a big push now to try and get the space open to the public as well. Um, mm. So we're, we're working away at that, getting all the infrastructure in place to make it safe for people to to come up and enjoy the space and have a look around and see what we're doing and um, and 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 yeah, see how we do things up on the rooftop. And some of your projects, produce does go to the local restaurants and and uh, cafes yeah. in the area, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, we're we're supplying quite a number of restaurants and cafes in Cork City now. Um, as well as doing the farmers market in Mahon Point and the farmers market um, on Cormac Street on a Saturday, so um, we do have plans also then to open our a shop on the on the Colquhoun as well. So that will be kind of in the pipeline as well. So we'll be able to sell our produce um, the full week through. So we're 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 busy working towards all these things. Um, but yeah, you can every Saturday at the at the Colquhoun and every Thursday at Mahon Point. So. 
it's um, not going well We're, and I think you know restaurants are really happy to support us they, mm. you know the, the support we've been getting is incredible and I think it's it's nice to be able to just walk from the site that the food is produced to deliver it to these people you know it's uh, um, literally all our customers are within walking distance so it's it's um, you know again you're reducing food miles you're, you're, you're producing food where it's needed the most so it's, it's it's um I think it's a part of how the the food production system will need to to move towards in urban areas you know there, there will need to be areas within cities where there is food production going forward into the future um and hopefully we can we can show a nice example of that um finally Brian have you any advice for people who um are growing lots of lovely flowers and plants and vegetables in their garden but may want to conserve water I know um in certain parts mm-hmm. of the country there is a, a hose pipe ban and people are being asked yeah. to conserve water it hasn't really come into play here in Cork but you know if it does would would that affect you guys and have you got advice for other people Yeah I suppose I mean to pr- to be proactive I guess against all these things you know the for example, in our, our in our farm out in Coachford, we have twenty thousand liters of of rainwater harvested um, as a backup for such uh, situations. Um, and on the, on the rooftop, we have we with the grow towers, we're using between five and ten percent of the water usage of say conventional um, farming. So, um, for for the amateur far, or the the, the homestead far, farmer or, or grower, I would advise you know if you are watering water early in the morning or late in the evening, don't water during the middle of the day. It'll evaporate too quickly, and uh, mm. to get the the, the most uh, use of your water. So early in the morning before the heat builds up, or late in the evening after it's cooled down, that would be the, the optimal times to be to be doing any watering. And if they can. Uh, harvest any rainwater. There's plenty of it falls in Ireland, so <laughs> That's to, have, sure. <laughs> to have to have a means to you know to hook into a gutter. There's a, there's small little um, implements you can you can get now. They cost maybe twenty five thirty euro, and you can hook that into a a basin uh, to a two hundred liter drum or something like that, and you could have a nice reserve of water for such occasions. And it, I think it's the onus is on everyone uh, nowadays to have. If you are gardening or if you are trying to do that, maybe have that um, that bit of a backup, you know. Brilliant. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM this morning. And if anybody is doing a bit of gardening over the next few days and looking after their plants, don't forget you can hear all the biggest hits from your favourite festival stars non-stop. The Cork's 96FM's Back Garden Festival is now streaming online with Harvey Norman and JBL, your specialist in sound this summer. Listen on our app or go to 96FM.ie. With regards to keeping dogs cool, Maeve has been in touch on 083390 with another suggestion soak a towel or towels in cold water and cover the dog this cools them down I have a retriever who's panning out but I keep doing throughout the day and I leave a wet cool towel on the floor for him to lie on when I'm out thank you very much for that Maeve now um are you looking for interactive, educational and playful things to do with your kids for the summer? I know that a lot of people um, are looking for things to do, especially when the summer camps have been cancelled. But joining me now on the line is Denise Cahill from Healthy Cities. Um, she's the Healthy Cities coordinator and she has some suggestions. Denise, good morning. Good morning, Fiona. Um, Denise, just tell me a little bit about um, this. Is, is it a Playful Cities initiative? 
It is. Um, so uh, Cork has been involved in an Urbex project, which is a European project around promoting clay um, for the last two and a half years. And we've been doing a number of things across the city in terms of, um, I suppose, making Cork as playful as possible. So things like pop-up play events and uh, we opened the play for Marina before the, the Marina, sorry, for play before it was pedestrianised about mm. two years ago. And I suppose it's captivated the imaginations of, of the city and uh, people are really, really engrossed in it and, and participating in it. Um, the libraries have gotten involved and they're going to be um, lending out play packs for communities. And we did play packs during the COVID um, restrictions as well for families and for older adults. So this is kind of the new phase um, of, of what we're at. And uh, we're working with the Tourism Directorate and Cork City Council around promoting um, play across the across the city in, in various cultural um, spaces. And where can people find out about where, where can people find the trail and, and find out what to do? So the, the play trail, um, the idea of it is that, you know, there's a, a whole range of cultural spaces um, across the city. Um, they're online and the, the leaflet is, is free to download. It's on the Cork Healthy Cities website under the Playful Paradigm Project or it's on the Cork City Council website. Mm. Um, and the trail basically encourages families around um, around the city to come along to the various um, spaces. Uh, they're safe, playful outdoor spaces in some cases and indoor in others. Um, and the idea is, I suppose, that when children and families arrive at these cultural spaces, such as Blarney Castle or the Glen River Park, which is an outdoor space, or Nanonagel Place, that something playful is available for them. Um, we, there's a little play bag that you can pick up at the first space that you go into. Mm. And then as you move around the various um, places across the city, such as Triscoll or Crawford or Glucksman, you can pick up different um, playful activities. So um, it's really, I suppose, a playful approach to engaging with the culture of the city. And I suppose play is so important now more than ever for children. It's essential. I mean, it's essential. It's always been essential in terms of children's development. And when we started the project two and a half years ago, you know, I, I work in the area of health and health promotion. Mm. Uh, my my understanding of play grew phenomenally. You know, I just thought play was something that children did. I didn't realise this is how they learn. This is how they communicate. This is how they learn to socialise and interact um, and engage with the world around them. So it's a fantastic tool, really, for children. And, you know, for the last year and a half, um, it's been more restricted. And we've realised the importance, you know, I've, I've two small children myself. Mm. We've, I've certainly realised the importance of space for them to play. Um, and I think because we're restricted in our local communities, um, we've become more, um, I suppose, our, our local communities have become more important to us. And those spaces are, are precious. So, um, you know, providing children with the opportunity to play as much as possible is, is really what our project is about. Um, and the city has, 
great opportunities. It doesn't have to be a playground. It doesn't have to be a toy. You know, children can create play um, in any space, really, that's safe for them. And that's what we're trying to promote um, throughout the city. And I suppose, like, because, you know, museums and galleries, a lot of the time people would fear bringing their child in in case they think there's nothing for them to do and they might break something. (laughs) Yes, and, you know, it's fabulous because the museums and the galleries have really embraced this because, and the libraries, actually, because, you know, traditionally, when I was growing up, for sure, you know, the concept was that you have to be quiet and you have to be well behaved and you have to, you know, be careful in these spaces. But actually, these spaces are really open to children and really want to embrace and and bring children in and get children involved, I suppose, um, from a young age and interested. So... They're very keen to be as child-friendly and family-friendly as possible, and they've been really open and uh, very engaged in this project. You know, this this was very easy to put together because these organisations and these spaces are, are really open to having children. Um, the Crawford Gallery, for example, did a did a whole uh, exhibition around play. Um, I think it was about two years ago just to talk about and embrace, I suppose, the idea of children participating in their space. And the Glucksman has been really progressive in terms of using its space to get children to talk about the kind of city that they want in the future through the Freedom of the City project with the City Development Plan. You know, asking children, you know, what they see for the future in a City Development Plan isn't something that's that's easily done without a creative space. Um so all of these organisations that are on the play trail have have really um, embraced the idea that they want children to come in, they want families and they want them to enjoy the space. So, And one really of those places it. is the fabulous Nano Nagel Place and joining me now is, uh, from there is Danielle O'Donovan. Good morning, Danielle. Great to talk to you. Uh, Danielle, what can uh, children and families expect when they go to Nano Nagel Place? Well, when, uh, when they go to any of the attractions, actually, they're going to be treated like VIPs. So when they come through the door, they're going to get a VIP sticker. And then um, when they come into the museum or the gallery, they're going to get their play bag that Denise already mentioned that has a, a, a little activity sheet that's specific to that place. Mm. And, and it has loads of things for them to do. And we had two fantastic interns from Museum Studies who also contributed to this project. I have to give them a shout, Maggie and Dervla, because they've been wonderful. And they invented a little character called Blaheen the Lizard. And she's hiding in all of the museums and galleries and attractions, and you have to find her. She's like a little sticker. And uh, when you do find her, you can come back to reception and tell tell whoever's on the desk, I found Blaheen the Lizard, and you get a sticker for that too. So um, we put loads of thought into making it really engaging. And our hope is that, um, that families and, and kids and their guardians are going to complete the whole trail of 30 things to do. Brilliant. And what kind of a reaction have you been getting so far? Oh, we've been having, we had some very happy children um, and, and it's, <laughs> our team would just say, the kids are leading the way. They're like, come on, we're doing the trail. And um, in fact, we're closed on Mondays and uh, a family came to the door to do the play trail and the little girls were so very disappointed that I had to give them all the stuff anyway. It's like, come back tomorrow, <laughs> you can do the trail. Um, and you know, some of the museums, galleries, attractions are free. And some of them have a, a paid-for ticket, but everybody has a family rate. Uh, so it's, it's not too expensive to visit. And, you know, it's been an awful time for kids. They haven't got to get out and do the things they love doing. And it's been a really tough time for our, for our cultural attractions because we've had our doors closed. And, you know, it's our business to, to welcome people. So we really need your support as well. So not only do we hope you have a good time, but we really, really appreciate everybody getting out and supporting us.
Brilliant. Thank you so much Dak, to Danielle O'Donovan and Denise Cahill for filling us in on that on the Cork's 96 FM opinion line. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96 FM. Welcome back, Fiona, in for PJ and the Opinion Line on Cork's 96 FM. Now, obviously, with this uh, gorgeous weather we're having and the heat wave and all of that, um, a lot of people have been talking about sunburn and uh, best ways to treat it and best ways to avoid it, more importantly. And I've been speaking to um, dermatologist specialist Celine Daly about all of this. Celine Daly, you're a dermatology nurse specialist, so I suppose you see all the different types of skin conditions that people have. And uh, the sun that we're experiencing now at the minute, it is so dangerous for our skin type in particular in Ireland. What advice would you give to people at the minute? Okay, so in dermatology terms, we worry about overexposure to sun because overexposure to sun causes skin cancer. We know there are over 13,000 cases of skin cancer diagnosed in Ireland each year with over 1,000 cases of the more serious type of malignant melanoma. So when we worry about the sun, we're talking about the UV rays that the sun emits. So the sun emits infrared, which is heat, which is what we're experiencing this week in spades because it's absolutely roasting, um, but it's also emitting UV radiation, particularly UVA and UVB radiation. And that radiation causes skin cancer. Now, re- UV radiation, you can smell it, you can see it, you can taste it. It's invisible. But the UV index can be moderate in Ireland on a day that's rainy and misty with clouds. So that's why we ask everyone to be what's called sun smart between the 1st of March until the end of September, every single year in Ireland, regardless of what the weather is like. And what advice would you give to people with regards then to sun cream? Like, is there a sun, you know, the way I, I saw somebody there on uh, Twitter the other day saying that they saw somebody putting baby oil on them, which is obviously a no-no. But is there a particular factor that we need to be putting on ourselves? <laughs> so... God, I thought everyone stopped wearing baby oil. I thought that was what we did in the late 90s. Staff, student nurses who were out on galvanised roofs with baby oil, and that is absolutely not recommended. So, first of all, SunSmart is where we wear a high factor SPF, a 30 or a 50, a broad brim hat, at least six inches, so no, no baseball caps, a nice broad brim hat, sunglasses, staying in the shade between 11 and 2, and keeping our clothing on. So, longer sleeves if you can, or at least a cap sleeve. So the SunSmart code, if it's used, works if it's used together. So there's no point in just using sunscreen or just using a hat. You must use everything together. That's sunscreen, factor 50 or 30, sunglasses, stay in the shade, keep it on the clothing and um, wearing your hat. So what we want people to do, particularly this week, though, is to be very mindful. It's also very warm outside as well as having a high UV index rating. Mm. So people should plan their activities in the morning time or the late afternoon. So right in, so say, 12 o'clock in the day, you shouldn't decide, I'm going to go to the beach today and I'm going to lie for two hours between 12 and 2. Because the sun is at its highest point and the UV index is high and you will burn. You'll also dehydrate very fast. So you should be drinking plenty water, planning your day, and seeking that shade between 11 and 2. People often think their sunscreen fails. It actually doesn't. It's because we use it improperly, really. So we should be reapplying our sunscreen every single two hours in direct light, regardless of what it says on the product. So 
look for the letter or look for the numbers 30 or 50 mm. and look for the UVA symbol which is a UVA letter with a circle around it or a 4 or 5 star rating as well. There's a really great Irish brand called Elav. They do a great sunscreen for kids. It's a pediatric one you can use from birth and it doesn't contain any preservatives that will irritate your skin, but it's very uh, protecting and it's got a great high factor of 50 in that. That's what you can get in your shelves in your local pharmacy. But it's important not to rely on sunscreen alone. It's important to use mm. a whole sunsmart coat. And you were talking there about the most um, dangerous hours of the day being between 11 and 2. But can you still get burnt if you're out in the evening time? Because I know at the minute the evening times are still particularly hot. Yes. You absolutely can. You could have got burnt at 10 a.m. this morning. The typical Irish skin type, which is skin type 1 to 2, which is red hair, blonde hair, green eyes, blue eyes, freckles, that type of skin will burn in 10 minutes at 10 a.m. this morning. So don't think you're going to go out into your car, go for a drive to the shop, it gets domestic and come out and you're going to be fine. You're going to burn if your skin is exposed, whether you're sitting in the car, in front of your window, or you're just nipping to the shop. So you Mm. don't have to deliberately go online and tell them the beach to burn. It's just getting your car, going, dropping off the kids to a camp, um, going shopping, meeting a friend for coffee or whatever it is. You can burn really fast. And I think in Ireland, we have a problem with accepting the type of skin type we have. Every year we think we're going to tan. when yeah. we don't. We burn every year. And a significant sun burning or a red sun burning every two years doubles your chance of developing malignant melanoma in later life. So it's very important to reduce down your amount of sun exposure. Because obviously everybody thinks that they look better with the tan and we all want to have a tan and it's something that we don't have and we don't have the sun a lot of the times of the year as well. So we do go a little bit crazy when it comes out. Um, so like, are you, like, do, are there certain types of things on person's skin that they need to be watching out for with regards to melanoma? Um, do you know, I know like there's, you know, certain moles and, and changes of colours. And so should we be kind of keeping an eye on that and monitoring that constantly? Mm-hmm. Everybody should monitor their skin every two months. So after you have a shower, have a quick look at your skin. You can see your back. So get your partner, friend, somebody you trust to have a little look at your back. If you see something new on your skin, if it has an irregular border, if it has a couple of colours within it, and if it's different in appearance to everything else in your skin. So our skin tends to have a lovely bunch of different lesions, like little red spots and little kind of subarcheratosis or old age spots sometimes, especially if you're over the age of 40. But if you're developing something new, which is bleeding or has an irregular colour or two colours within it or an irregular border, looks different. We call it the ugly duckling. So Mm. if it looks different to everything else, make an appointment with a GP, go down and have your GP have a look at it. If your GP can't tell what it is, you can be referred to a hospital-based consultant dermatologist who can see and examine your skin and take it from there. Remembering that most things that are referred are benign lesions or normal lesions. Hmm. Nine out of ten times. But when we catch skin cancer early, skin cancer is a good news story. So it's a good news story because we know what causes it. It's caused by overexposure to UV light. And also, it's a good news story because we know if we catch it early, it's totally treatable. However, if it's left on the skin for a period of time, it can leak in the terms of melanoma from the melanoma and spread to other organs of the body and that's when we get worried about it. So it's so important to know what your skin looks like as a baseline and if you see something new, unusual, that doesn't look like everything else in your skin, that you ring your GP, make an appointment and be seen. And Celine, if somebody does get burnt by the sun, you know, despite having taken all the precautions, uh, what kind of advice would you give to them? 
First of all, is to take note that you are somebody who is sunburned and that you really shouldn't get your skin sunburned again because, again, 9 out of 10 cases of skin cancer are due to sunburning. The first thing to do is to come in, wrap yourself in a cold towel, cool off, even sit into a cold bath. You can put on something like menthol and aqueous cream, which you can buy over the counter in the pharmacy as well. And again, Orbel supply that. Um, go to your GP. If you're shivery and shaky or if you have somebody in the household who has been sunburned significantly or they're confused um, as they don't know where they are mm. as they feel dehydrated you need to get an emergency so you need to contact emergency therapists if that happens but that should not happen to you it's very dangerous your skin is an organ of your body if your entire skin is sunburnt that's a medical emergency so that's really really serious and the problem is on social media you see these photographs people are sunburnt or they share their sunburnt stories and it's a bit of a laugh it's actually not because it is serious it can be a serious medical issue but then it's a long term risk of skin cancer that we're worried about as well. So again, think of our Spanish friends. They go in between 11 and 2 in the daytime. They have a little siesta, have a little break, stay in the shade, and then they don't get sunburned. So you can enjoy these next few days. And again, we have an outdoor summer with COVID. Of course, we have to distance, and that's fine. But we don't have to get sunburned to enjoy ourselves. Just please protect your skin the sun for these next few days, particularly. And you wanted to give a shout out there to the Marie Keating Foundation as well. Yes, because they're fantastic with everything cancer prevention. But at the moment, they have launched a podcast called um, Talking Cancer, and it's the melanoma section. So if you go to Spotify, anywhere you look, listen to your podcast, put in Marie Keating Foundation and melanoma. And there's, I think there's six um, episodes. It's a fabulous podcast. So much information on melanoma. And if you have any questions or queries on what a skin cancer looks like, just go on to irishskin.ie where you'll see various pictures of what skin cancer looks like and there's a dermatology nurse helpline on that website as well that's completely for free that you can contact if you have any queries or concerns about your skin. Okay, Celine Daly, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. No problem at all, anytime. Thanks very much to Celine there. And just before I go, we have had a few callers asking if anyone saw anything in the sky last night at around 11pm. Turns out it was the International Space Station. So there you go. Have a lovely Wednesday. Join us again tomorrow. Thank you.